This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. This is episode one of Cold Case Canada, the murder of Jenny Eldon Conroy, a 24-year-old war worker who was beaten to death in 1944, her body dumped at the West Vancouver Cemetery. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. A few days after my book Cold Case Vancouver was finished and sent off for editing, I got an email from Diane Eady at the North Vancouver Museum and Archives. Diane had just come into the possession of a family album with photos that went up to the early 1940s. The owner's name, Miss J Conroy, was inscribed in the inside front cover with her address. Diane did some digging and she thought that I'd be interested in what she'd found out. I was. In fact, I jumped in my car and I went straight down to the archives to look at the photo album. Diane told me that she'd found out that Jenny Conroy was a 24-year-old war worker who was born and raised in North Vancouver. Jenny was brutally murdered in 1944 and her murder was never solved. The other interesting part of this was that the mystery album had come via West Vancouver archives, but no one knew how they got it, when they got it, or why they'd kept it. Some of the people were identified by their first names in the album. There's Dad and me, Jenny with her sisters Mabel and Eva, and someone called Millie. I drove to the address on the back of one of the photos and found that the house was still there. And then I wrote a story on my blog and I included the photo that I'd taken of Diane holding the mystery album. The next day, I got an email from Jenny Conroy's niece. Her name is Debbie. Debbie told me that her Aunt Jenny had given birth to a daughter just a couple of months before she was murdered and that Mary was alive and well and living in New Zealand. She asked me if I'd like to talk to her. I phoned Mary and Mary told me that she'd spent years researching her biological mother and her mother's family and she'd gather up all these adoption records for me. After talking to Mary, I knew that I wanted Jenny's story in my book. It was almost like I had Jenny tapping me on the shoulder. She needed to be included. And so working with Mary and Debbie, we began to build a profile of Jenny. What she looked like, what her family background was like, and the type of person that she was. Jenny was born and raised in North Vancouver which is part of the mountainous North Shore, and it's separated from the city of Vancouver by the Burrard Inlet. It's accessible now by two bridges and the sea bus. So now you have the backstory, and now I'm going to tell you the whole story of Jenny's tragic murder, including who may have killed her. The year was 1944. Jenny Conroy finished her shift as a grain loader at 5pm on December 27th. She hurried back to the little house that she shared with a friend. She quickly changed into her mauve and grey dress, put on a tan coat, her black shoes and gloves. Jenny decided not to wear a hat and left her long brown hair loose. She rushed out of the house and ran down to the foot of Lonsdale Avenue to catch the bus to her brother's house. 
Jenny was meeting her father and her sister Eva at Sid's for a late Christmas dinner. Jenny reached the North Vancouver Ferry office at 6.10pm. She'd missed her bus by less than a minute. George Malik, the ticket seller, recognised Jenny and gave her a schedule for the next bus. Jenny saw that she had a 45-minute to an hour wait. The Conroys waited for Jenny until 8pm. When she still hadn't arrived, they ate dinner. Her father John and sister Eva left for their North Vancouver home around 10pm. At 2am, Jenny's friend, Winifred Richards, who she shared the house with, phoned to tell the Conroys that she was really worried that Jenny had not come home. I have some great news for Vancouver listeners. Those of you who live in the Lower Mainland and love jewellery and design will be excited to know that Erin Haken has opened a studio in Vancouver. Erin brings her degree in art history and studies in jewellery making together with her love of antique styling to create really unique handcrafted pieces. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. Shortly after 10am on Thursday, December 28th, Dave Chapman, a foreman for the West Vancouver Board of Works, and James Elliott, a city truck driver, were returning from the dump. They found Jenny's body on a gravel road off 3rd Street, which was an uninhabited area near the Capilano View Cemetery and less than two kilometres from her brother's house. Jenny had been badly beaten. The back of her head was smashed in by a claw hammer and her jaw and her nose were broken. There was a cut on her left hand and some blood found on 3rd Street and gouge marks on the road which indicated that she'd been dragged just over 14 metres along the dead-end street. Vancouver Police Inspector John Vance had been brought over to handle the forensics. He found gravel in the ball of one of her feet and noted that the soles of her stockings were wet. He thought that this indicated that she'd tried to run from her attacker, likely by jumping out of his vehicle. Her body was still warm when she was found at 10.30 that morning. The coroner put her death somewhere between 4 and 6 a.m. He was unable to determine where the actual murder took place. Police found only one of her shoes lying near 3rd Street. They also found an empty whiskey bottle nearby that was soaked with Jenny's blood, her identification papers and a West Vancouver bus timetable. Two days after a murder, police leaked to the press that Jenny was an unwed mother and had turned her baby over to the welfare authorities. The tone of the newspapers changed. The Vancouver Sun came out with this story. Police disclosed that Miss Conroy was the mother of a baby girl born last October in North Vancouver General Hospital, and that her father had no idea. The infant was turned over to welfare authorities later. An empty whiskey bottle, found near her body in the bush, is regarded by police as evidence that there had been drinking in the car. The girl, police say, made no telephone calls from Mrs. Richards' home before leaving, but rushed out in an exceptional hurry, as if she were going to meet someone, strengthening the police theory that Miss Conroy spent all night with her unidentified assailant, only to be murdered at dawn. The West Vancouver Police Department's next move, according to Chief Hailstone, would be to try to check on her recent boyfriends.
The news stories further traumatised her family, who were unaware of Jenny's pregnancy, and with no evidence to support it, the police investigation focused on the assumption that Jenny had no intention of meeting her family that night, and that she'd prearranged to meet her killer. They theorised that she'd spent the night with him, and that an empty bottle of whisky by the road indicated that they were drinking before her murder. The subtext was somehow Jenny deserved this. When the truth came out, there was no apology by police or retraction in the newspaper. But her friend and roommate, Winifred Richards, was quoted as saying that Jenny was a wonderful person. Everybody loved her. She told the reporter that Jenny had looked forward to the dinner with her family. When evidence emerged to prove that Jenny was not the architect of her own murder, police started to look at other theories. They found that she'd bought a bus ticket to West Vancouver, had missed the bus and was seen walking away from the terminal. They believed that she might have started walking to the next stop, but accepted a ride along the way. This was the first murder in West Vancouver since it had been incorporated in 1912 and it was over the head of the local police, which like most police forces, was severely short-staffed because of the war. Walter Mulligan, superintendent of the Vancouver Police Department's CIB, was brought in to head up the investigation. The newspapers called it the most intensive manhunt in West Vancouver's history. Police borrowed the Royal Canadian Mounted Police's best tracker dog. Cliff the giant Schnauzer scoured the bush around the crime scene. The dog found a clot of blood-stained excelsior. That was a material used for packing and it was found two blocks from where Jenny's body was found. They also found bits of this excelsior stuck to Jenny's coat. On the day after Jenny's murder, police found her missing left shoe, an open-toed black pump, lying on the lawn at the corner of Beatty and Pender Streets in downtown Vancouver. There's a giant concrete parking lot there now, but in 1944 it was a children's clinic. It meant that the killer could have come across the inlet after dumping Jenny's body in West Vancouver, found the shoe in his car and tossed it out onto the street as he drove by. The search spread to laundries, dry cleaners and garages as police hoped the killer was dumb enough to take in bloody clothes or car mats to be cleaned and they checked dozens of reports of a green Chevrolet coupe that was seen in the area on the night of the murder. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor, and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. Jenny was born in North Vancouver in July 1920 to Minnie and John Cecil Conroy. Jenny was only six when her mother died from cancer and the family started to bounce around to different addresses in North Vancouver 
John worked on the ferries and was often away overnight. And Mabel, who was 15 when her mother died, was left to bring up the younger kids. When Jenny was 14, her older brother Sid had already left home and Mabel married and moved to Victoria. Jenny was forced to leave school and look after Eva and the house. It was 1934, smack in the middle of the Depression, and Jenny was already five foot eight. She was slim, with brown curly hair and blue eyes. She was 19 when war broke out and got work as a pipe fitter's helper at North Vancouver Ship Repairs. The job paid $100 a month, which was a decent chunk of money back then, especially for a young woman. Jenny moved out of her father's house and boarded with Winifred Richards. Winifred's husband was away fighting in the war, and her younger sister Josephine worked with Jenny at the shipyards. Jenny met her boyfriend through her job at the shipyards. He was a good-looking 23-year-old, over six feet tall with dark hair and dark brown eyes. He was Jenny's first boyfriend. They started going out to a dance or to see a show once a week, and they'd been going out for about four months when Jenny found out that she was pregnant. He told her that the baby wasn't his, that she must have been sleeping around. And then he moved to Victoria on Vancouver Island, and they never saw each other again. Jenny's co-workers all said that to their knowledge, Jenny had only ever had one boyfriend. They described her as a cheery, popular girl who was always smiling and joking. She loved music and she played the Hawaiian guitar. Jenny worked at the shipyards until April 30th, 1944, about the same time that her pregnancy would have started to show. Now, I just wanted to take a few minutes to look at the ramifications of what it would have been like to be an unwed mother in the 1940s. Even in wartime when morals would have loosened up a little bit, unmarried mothers were still viewed as fallen women and their children were seen as illegitimate. The social stigma was severe. In those days, many unwed mothers were dumped into church-run maternity homes and forced to give their child up for adoption. In fact, the years between 1940 and as late as 1970 are known as the baby scoop era, and a shocking number of unmarried pregnant women, as many as 400,000 across Canada, were put into these horrible government-funded, church-run institutions. These women were shamed and they were abused because it was thought that this was the only way to stop them from becoming pregnant again. Almost all, about 96%, had their babies forcibly taken away from them. There was no mention of the fathers or any obligation that they might have had to the child. And Jenny had told a nurse at the hospital when she had the baby that her own father would be very cross with her if he knew. So she felt that she had to keep it a secret. I live in North Vancouver now, and in some respects it's still very much a small town. But in 1944, it must have been tiny. Everyone knew each other. There was no government safety net or welfare for single mothers, so Jenny had to go it alone. She managed to save up enough money from her job at the shipyards to support herself during the pregnancy, and then she hid her condition to protect her family from the scandal. Jenny's baby was born on October 10, 1944. She called the little girl Cherry. Then Jenny placed her in foster care and shortly after went back to work as a grain loader. There's a note on the adoption file dated November 13, 1944 
from a childcare worker, stating that Jenny was determined that her baby be adopted so that she would have a mother and father and knock her up to be ridiculed because she was illegitimate. The child welfare worker's impression of Jenny are included in the adoption file. This is what she said. She has blue eyes and is neatly dressed. She appears to have a pleasant personality and has a particularly attractive smile. Worker feels that the mother is within the normal group of general intelligence. She was quite embarrassed throughout the interview and has a rather appealing shyness about her. She seems truthful and is most sincere in her desire that the baby should be adopted so that she would have a regular home with a father and a mother. She does not feel that she has enough to offer the baby and is particularly afraid that when Cherry reaches school age, she might be teased unmercifully by her schoolmates if she remained with the unmarried mother. A doctor who attended the birth noted that Jenny was of average intelligence and that the baby also seemed normally intelligent. This was important because in those days, the assumption was that only promiscuous women became pregnant, and the psychologists believed that this was a direct result of their low intelligence. Worse, they thought that this probable low IQ and loose morals could be passed along to the baby, so adoption wasn't considered safe necessarily either. Getting back to the father of Jenny's baby, the other problem was that Jenny needed permission from her ex-boyfriend to adopt out the baby, and he'd refused. Eventually, he signed an admission of paternity, but he said that it was under duress, that he was only doing this because he was starting a new job and he was afraid his employer would find out if Jenny went after him for maintenance and he'd be fired. He said again that he believed that Jenny was seeing other men, that she was sleeping around. And that's really interesting because he was the only person that ever suggested that Jenny ever had more than one boyfriend in her very short life. Jenny's daughter, Cherry Lynn Conroy, was adopted by the Ward family from Chilliwack when she was nine months old. Her name was changed to Mary Elizabeth Catherine. This is Mary on the phone to me from her home in New Zealand. I always knew I was adopted from my family in Chilliwack, and I knew the name of my mother because my adopted mother had saved the newspaper article with a picture of her in it when she was murdered, and she always told me this. And That's unusual, because back then it would have been usually blind adoptions, wouldn't it? I know it would have been, but I, I don't know when she told me, but it must have been when I was quite young, so I must have known from quite an early age. Yeah, so I had that newspaper article, and then it just sat in my mind and in my diary, I suppose. And when I was 18, went off to Victoria to go to university, I thought, hmm, I might just go to the BC archives and do a search. And I got the original birth certificate. Mary finished university, she married Brian, and the couple moved to New Zealand and raised five sons. In the late 1990s, following the death of her adopted mother, Mary decided to find a biological family. The Ministry of Children and Family Development gave her a thick file of notes pertaining to her adoption, but they blacked out the name of her father. So who was your father? Well, I don't know for sure, but uh, Ministry of Children and Family Development do know, and they've talked to him, but he did not want to have communication, and then the privacy law kicked in. Like, I have a whole arch file, a big thick one, about five inches thick, of my adoption notes, 
and every place that mentions his name is removed. But because I was so keen, I managed to <laughs> out. They didn't do it very well, and I managed to work out if the bottom letters were a V or a curve. And then I had help from parent finders, and um, we worked out the name from that. In 1944, the practice was to leave the father's name off the birth certificate if the parents weren't married. But with help from Joan Vanstone, the founder of a search organisation called Parent Finders, Mary managed to track him down to an address in North Vancouver. He admitted that he knew Jenny, but denied that he was the father of her baby, refused to take a DNA test, and told Mary not to contact him again. Mary came to Vancouver in 2004 to meet her biological family. Her aunt Eva, Jenny's younger sister, had died the year before, and Mabel, Jenny's older sister, was still alive but had dementia. Mary was able to meet her uncle Sid, though he was 88 at the time. Sid didn't like to talk about his sister Jenny, but his wife Lorraine had known her well and said she'd been very fond of her. Debbie, who is Sid and Lorraine's daughter, says a visit was a good one for her father. Who died in 2012? So、uh, when my family met Mary, it was actually quite healing in a way、mm-hmm. because she's a lovely person and she was so open about this. Debbie, one of three girls, grew up not knowing of her cousin Mary's existence. She only found out about her aunt Jenny when she was going through the family photo album as a child. When did you first hear that your aunt had been murdered? I think I was looking through old family pictures when I was quite young. And I said to my dad, "Well, who is this?" I knew who the aunts were, and then there was one where there was an extra girl. And so he, I think he told me her name, and then my mum kind of filled me in on the rest of the story. And then I think in about my、uh, late teens or early twenties as well, it came up again because they published something in the newspaper about unsolved murder mysteries again. And so、oh, yeah. I saw the name Conroy in the newspaper at that time. What would have been like the late. Seventies or something.、Oh, There was just a, an article. It didn't go into any detail on them. It just gave a list of unsolved murder mysteries, and、oh. so we talked about it again then. But you know, he just was not forthcoming with much、mm. detail about all of that. It wasn't until two thousand and four, when Mary came to Canada to meet her biological family, that Debbie discovered that she had a cousin. Like I, I would thought that you know he talked to me about it when you know as I got older, but only in little bits and pieces. And when I found out that Mary was <laughs> was、uh, back in the picture, I was a little bit surprised. I thought, well, Dad, couldn't you have said something about that? But it's almost like he had just closed that off. Shortly after his sister's murder, Sid sold the house he'd built in West Vancouver and moved the family to BC's interior. Partly, it was to try his hand at ranching. And partly, it was to get away from the media attacks on his sister and her horrific death. Like I don't know what, why my dad kept so quiet. Whether he felt shame or blame, and I thought, how dare they? Women got blamed for so many things. After making headlines for a week, Jenny's murder disappeared from the papers. Then, on February second, nineteen forty-five, the provincial government offered a one thousand dollar reward. For information leading to the arrest of Jenny's murderer, and then Jenny's case went cold for the next seven years. Sergeant Don Matheson, a former West Vancouver police officer who had worked on Jenny's murder, left the department in 1945, but stayed obsessed with her case. He'd found the owner of the mysterious green coupe 
questioned him and was convinced that he had nothing to do with the murder. The other red herring in this case was the empty whiskey bottle that had been found near Jenny's body and led police to assume that she'd been drinking with her killer before she was killed. No fingerprints were found on the bottle and there was no alcohol in her blood. Matheson tracked down a friend of Jenny's who said she'd seen Jenny at 6.45pm walking up Lonsdale on the night of her murder. Jenny told her friend that she'd missed the bus and had decided to walk to her brother's house. The other thing that was bothering Matheson was the excelsior that had been found on Jenny's body and near her crime scene. It was a type of padding made mostly from newspapers. Matheson decided to take a closer look. He found out that it was manufactured in San Francisco and that there are only a handful of importers of the product in Canada. One of them was a 33-year-old North Vancouver man who sold fruit and vegetables door-to-door. Although the man's name never appeared in a police report, Matheson said the grocer had asked about the progress of the murder investigation during the course of two visits to the police station in the weeks following Jenny's murder. Matheson followed the greengrocer as he made deliveries in his truck and found that he frequently crossed the Lionsgate Bridge into downtown Vancouver along Pender Street and could have easily tossed Jenny's shoe from his truck window. Matheson believed the grocer had seen Jenny walking away from the bus terminal after she missed her bus and offered her a ride. It's also quite possible that Jenny could have known the grocer, at least by sight. He visited dozens of houses through his work and may have been someone that she wasn't threatened by, someone she would have taken a ride from after missing her bus. Matheson said he'd checked the greengrocer's alibi that he was visiting neighbours on the night of Jenny's murder. When Matheson checked again, the neighbours told him they hadn't seen him that night. By 1952, Matheson was getting increasingly frustrated by the police's inaction to investigate his findings. Possibly the detectives didn't want to be shown up. Charles Hailstone was still Chief Constable of the West Vancouver Police Force, and now Walter Mulligan, the superintendent of the CIB, had been made Chief Constable, the youngest member to do so in the history of the Vancouver Police Department. It also transpired that he was on the take. And within a few years, Mulligan would be the subject of a royal commission into police corruption. He fled the country in 1955 before he could be charged. But that was all still in the future, and both chiefs were doing what they could to put the brakes on Matheson's investigation. So Matheson went to the press. The headline on page one of the January 5th, 1952 edition of The Province was seven years of investigation New Theory on Conroy Murder. This is the interview that Matheson gave to the province, read by Mark Dunn. Mr. X picked her up in his truck and probably made a pass at her. She struck him and a struggle started. He swung back. I believe he hit her in the face and knocked her back and her head hit hard against something that inflicted the injury on the back of her head and knocked her out. Maybe a large bolt head on a partition behind the truck seat. Mr. X saw that she was unconscious and took her into the back of the truck. He stretched her out flat, otherwise blood would have flowed down onto her coat, and tried to make her comfortable with the Excelsior padding as a headrest. Remember this, Jenny was a big girl, five feet, eight and one half inches tall, 150 pounds, well built. She could not have been stretched out in a car. That's when Mr. X must have done some heavy thinking. Remember he had until morning to figure it out. 
he would realize that even if she recovered, it would mean prosecution against him. So he decided to kill her and get rid of her before daybreak. He drove up to the cemetery area near Inglewood and 3rd. There's a bad bump two blocks south, and that's how the padding likely swirled out to be found the next day. Then, cool and calm, he used a claw hammer of some sort to pound her to death on the forehead, just a little left of center. Several blows came down in the same spot. It would be done much like a man would kill an animal caught in a trap. Then Mr. X dragged her into the wooded area and left her. Now all I ask is that the police reopen their investigation, take what I have to offer, and go to work. I'm sure it'll be worth their while. Is that what happened? Maybe. It's certainly plausible. But it did get Jenny's case reopened, because it pressured Chief Hailstone to take Matheson's theory to the police commission. A few days later, the media reported that a suspect had been questioned and had given a satisfactory statement that his truck was checked for clues and nothing was found, which I hope would surprise no one after seven years. And after several months, no arrests were made. Police always say that a cold case is never closed, and while that might be true, many of these cold cases are not open either. One of the frustrating things about researching this case for me was that the inquest records had been lost. This is quite unusual. In fact, it's the first time it's ever happened to me. And when Mary, Jenny's daughter, contacted the West Vancouver Police in 2004 for an update on her mother's murder file, she was told that the department had lost the file in 1980. Debbie says that in the more than seven decades that have gone by since her aunt's murder, police have never once contacted the family. Has the police been in contact with your family over the years? Never. 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 They brushed it under the carpet. It just didn't matter. I think it was probably dropped, bungled and dropped. What really struck me was how they talked about her in the press and the way, the way she as a person was treated. And I think it had to do with poverty and shame and blame. And I do feel that she's owed some just for that. In 2012, another interesting item surfaced. John Mackey, a Vancouver Sun reporter, found a single drawer from an old wooden filing cabinet tucked away in the corner of a closet. When he opened it, he found confidential files that were labelled Sun staff use only. Most were around 1950, the same year that a column called Somebody Knows got underway. It asked the public to provide tips for unsolved murders. One letter to the paper said that they should investigate a man who used to work with Jenny Conroy's father at the North Vancouver Ferries. Another said that the authorities should check men on leave from the Comox Air Force Base at the time of her killing because the letter writer had apparently picked up a man who'd been acting suspiciously. When the driver brought up the subject of Jenny's murder to the hitchhiker, he apparently jumped out of the car and ran into the dark. I don't know if anyone ever investigated these leads, but I had the name of the man who worked with Jenny's father. I looked him up in the 1944 city directory. He's listed as a ticket agent at North Vancouver Ferries and was living with his wife just a block away from the Conroy home. I looked up his death certificate and in 1944 he was 50 years old. He died in 1954. He and his wife had lived there for a few years, so Jenny certainly would have known him.
While I was researching Jenny Conroy's murder for Cold Case Vancouver, I became intrigued by Inspector Vance, the forensics expert who had been loaned by the Vancouver Police Department to work on Jenny's crime scene. There was some information about him at the Vancouver Police Museum and Archives, and I spent some time trying to track down family members. I found his daughter, who was 98 at the time, but sadly suffering from dementia. Her daughter Janie, Vance's granddaughter, put me in touch with other relatives of the Vance family. Two of the grandchildren were quite young when Vance died back in 1964, but they remembered that they'd helped him pack up several cardboard boxes full of his notes and photographs and crime scene photos and clippings and case notes. No one had seen this information for years, decades in fact, and it was thought that they'd been thrown out long ago. So in a last-ditch effort, I sent out an email to all the family members who I'd been in contact with, asking them if they'd check their attics and basements for any documents and photos that may have survived. And I got lucky. Seven boxes turned up in a grandchild's garage on Gabriola Island, one of the Gulf Islands just outside of Vancouver. And incredibly, when I opened the first box, there was a large tattered envelope labelled Jenny Eldon Conroy, murdered December 28, 1944. Inside, there were small envelopes with the Vancouver Police Department insignia and they were filled with hair and gravel samples from the crime scene. I actually had Jenny's hair spilling out on my desk. There was an autopsy report, crime scene photos, and there were dozens of newspaper clippings. It really was a researcher's dream. Inspector John Vance solved a lot of cases over his 42-year career, but sadly, Jenny's was not one of them. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. The murder of Jenny Eldon Conroy and all the original research and interviews are from my book Cold Case Vancouver, The City's Most Baffling Unsolved Murders. Please visit my website, evelazarus.com, for crime scene and evidence photos. If you'd like more information about this or any of my other books, podcast, or my Facebook page, Cold Case Vancouver, please see the show notes on my website. And if you haven't already, please check out my other podcast, Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher. Podcatcher.